Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 25 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday, the 24th of July. And Leon, the menu today... Well, first of all, we're going to have a chat with Ursula Dauenhauer. She's a uh, entrepreneur from Sydney. She has designed what she calls a B2B sales simulator for her business, Business Backstage. This sales simulator actually helps companies recruit salespeople. Yeah, it helps assessment of them. And uh, Ursula saw, thought the airlines use a simulator to train pilots. Why not use a simulator to train and also assess uh, candidates in business? Absolutely. So we're going to have a chat with her and then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel, and we're going to be talking about all about the discrepancy between um, the polls that assess business confidence, which is soaring, and consumer confidence, which is down. Why is that the case? Which is real. Anyway, first of all, let's have a chat to Ursula. We spoke to her by Skype, and uh, I fear the sound isn't quite what we'd like, but I hope it's clear enough. Ursula Downhauer. Uh, tell us about the B2B sales simulator. The B2B sales simulator has an interesting story. And it really starts with me working in, um, in the IT market with, uh, with uh, medium-sized organizations that have a very high dependability on getting their sales teams right, getting sales performance. And so hiring is a crucial factor of that. And um, talking to many, many um, directors of businesses, there was a reoccurring theme. The reoccurring theme was the hiring and firing theme, which meant that only about one in four senior sales representatives actually deliver the outcomes they were hired to do. So the numbers are quite scary because we are talking here about an investment that can amount to 150 to 200k, not even not even uh, considering uh, the lost opportunity, the cost of lost opportunity that comes with it and potential reputational damage in the market. So one of my clients said, you know what, we need to get this right. We can't keep doing this. We have to change the odds. And um, because we have applied a concept of scenario simulations in some of the sales enablement, they said, look, can you build us something like a flight simulator? You know, I imagine this like, a, like an airline who needs to hire a pilot. They put him in a simulator and they expose him to different circumstances and situations and you can see if the pilot can actually fly your kind of plane and can deal with your kind of conditions and so we embarked on the journey to say yes we can build a simulator for the for the task to to see if a salesperson is the right salesperson for your organization and the role you have to fill so the whole objective was to remove ambiguity and deliver an evidence-based method that lets the stakeholders see in front of them if the person has the right skills and behaviors to do the job they need him to do. So how exactly does it work? I mean, if I come in, I'm applying for a sales job, what do you put me through? 
Well, if you are applying for a sales job, then you would get initially some briefing notes that would first invite you to the role play so you can declare if you are prepared to do it or not, which in a funny way already signals your commitment uh, and your attitude to that situation. Uh, next, you would receive a very detailed briefing material about the organization and then you would get information about a sales scenario. So you would receive information that would say, imagine you have the job. Imagine you would go into a client meeting. Here is the organization you go and see. These are, these are the people you're going to see. And now you are in full control of showing us how you would go about preparing and managing this meeting. So it is the closest thing to reality. And the most important thing here is nobody says what's right or wrong. There is no judging here. What we are saying is these are the skills and behaviors we would like to see. And it is under your entire control to drive this meeting, this scenario role play, exactly how you would do it. And so how, how is that role play carried out? Is it, is it online? Is it text? Is it uh, uh, conversational? How does it work? Again, it is the closest thing to reality because it is done in person. So you would arrive in the morning, be greeted by your future sales manager. Your future sales manager would have a conversation with you just like you would do if you had a job. He would ask you, okay, who are you going to see? What are your meeting objectives? How do you see the situation? Um, what, what is it you want to achieve in this meeting? And you would set your call objectives, your meeting objectives. Um, you would outline the approach you're going to take. And then you leave the preparation room and then you knock at that door, just you would do in real life. The door opens and you would meet a fictional bio persona. So that could be role-based. It could be a CFO. It could be an operations manager. It could be a marketing manager. It would represent... This bio persona would represent exactly that type of bio persona you would have to sell to if you had the job. So how effective is it in determining how good people are? So as the candidate, you would start this, the meeting and conduct the meeting exactly how you feel it is best done. Have you have you had anyone um, mucking it up? It is brutally honest because because the candidate is in full control of the situation. You gotta consider that in this role play, the recruiting sales manager or other stakeholders would actually sit in the room and observe. And so it shows just like you would go together on a sales meeting exactly how the candidate behaves and the skills they are displaying. In the preparation, you can even go as far as saying, and that's what we have done, so look, we have to deal, our salespeople need to be very, very good at dealing with different types of people. So we are creating different biopersonas. There might be a very analytical CFO. There might be a more um, 
um, a more in, emotional operations manager. There might be an idealistic marketing manager. I'm, I'm really, um, I'm going a little bit out of a limb here to show exactly how different personas can be. They're driven by different motivators. They have different personalities. They have different communication styles. No, there is no mucking up. See, there is no mucking up. Uh, that's the thing. It is not judgmental. What we actually say is, look, at any point of time, if you lose track, if, um, if you, you know, lose your chain of thought, just call time out. Call time out and we start again. The whole scenario is totally under the candidate's control. And, uh, and again, it shows a degree of maturity and their ability to be able to work under pressure. It is, a, it is another thing that this process um, shows. It shows how people respond to pressure, how people work to timescales, and how they can still uh, stay focused on the job at hand. See, the next step is that after every role play, again, the candidate debriefs with the future sales manager. And uh, so the sales manager will have the opportunity to say to the candidate, can you give me a sense of how you think this meeting went? Do you think you've achieved your meeting objectives? What would be your next objectives? What concerns would you have? How would you rate this opportunity in your sales pipeline? These are all the analytical skills. So this is how we bring together the art and the science of sales, because now we can see if the candidate can apply analytical thinking to under to analyze and understand a sales opportunity so that they are recorded and reported accurately in sales pipelines. You see, the, a big issue for lots of sales managers is to have trust in a sales pipeline, to have trust in forecast. It is crucial for any sales organization to have accurate reliable and predictable revenue forecasts. And so if the candidate has a weakness in analyzing and qualifying opportunities, has a massive negative downstream in the organization. So again, in this role place, we are not looking for perfect. We are simply wanting to see what is the talent we have here? What is this candidate capable of or not capable of? what needs to be trained or what is ready to go into market. So it gives a very wide range across the art and science of selling that is both are equally important. Now, has companies come back to business backstage, your business, and told you that they picked up better sales staff as a result of this? Yes. So it was really interesting um, in one particular scenario and the organization shall remain um, unnamed wouldn't be fair to to the individuals where we've been through the process of initial traditional interviews so again it is quite important to have a balance in the approach so it started the process started with uh, traditional interviews and we arrived at the same situation we have candidates all the cvs sound right we are getting from all of them the right answers Psychometric testing pans out right. The references sound good. How do we make a decision now? How do we make a decision and pick the right talent? And so through the simulator, we have seen the big surprise was also candidates espoused in the interviews the same 
skills and behaviors. You know, you would hear things like, yes, I'm a consultative salesperson. Yes, I really listen to customers. Yes, I develop solutions that fit my customers' needs and so on and so on. Let's not forget, they are salespeople and rehearse and prepare very well an interview. They will get the answers right. However, in the role play, we have seen the real behaviors and then the organization can make an evidence-based real decision for the right talent. Again, there is no right or wrong. If you're hiring for transactional product selling, you don't want you don't want necessarily a very highly consultative person and vice versa because they would be wrong for the job. So it's all about knowing exactly what you're looking for and then seeing and observing if the candidate has the right behaviors and skills for that. Ursula Downhound, thank you very much for your time. That's my pleasure. Yeah, it's a great idea. It's interesting that the candidate is in the simulator and the candidate's in control, basically. Yeah. And that's how people understand if he's the right person for the job they're looking that's for. That's right, yeah. Really very interesting. And now, Leon, Jonathan Boymel. Jonathan Boymel, there seems to be a discrepancy between business sentiment and consumer sentiment. Business sentiment is looking up. Businesses are more confident than they've been for years since certainly uh, they're as confident now as they were when uh, the Abbott government was elected. But consumer confidence has gone downhill. Why do we have this discrepancy? Look, it's a good, good question. There's a long tradition in, in macroeconomics suggesting that business cycles are, are driven in part by bouts of optimism and pessimism. And that goes back to at least 1936 with John Maynard Keynes. And since then, people have been looking at the way that animal spirits or gut feelings um, drive economic activity. We know that in 2009, there was a, a book on animal spirits written by Akerlof and, uh, yes. and Schiller. And most recently, um, there was a paper in the June quarter RBA bulletin on the role that gut feelings and animal spirits play in terms of driving investment. Now, there are, there are two ways of looking at the relationship between expectations and economic activity. One view is that sentiment swings economic activity in a, in a self-fulfilling feedback loop. So if consumers and investors uh, or firms feel more confident, then this optimism causes an increase in economic activity which then validates the initial optimistic sentiment. There's another um, view, and that is optimism arises when agents learn about forces that will positively affect future fundamentals. So even though you've got a change in confidence and then a change in spending, the change in confidence, in fact, doesn't cause the change in spending, but it's re that change in confidence is reflected in, in other fundamental variables that contribute to, to business cycle fluctuation. So uh, according to that view, consumer confidence, confidence matters for future consumption because it predicts future income and growth, but it doesn't drive future, future income and growth. Wh which view is right? Well, it's a little bit of both. When you take a look at the, the empirical literature, the answer is that, that both views are right. The general pattern is that consumer sentiment and investment sentiment have some predictive power for consumption growth and investment growth over and above its ability to forecast future future fundamentals. Now, you're right. What What's interesting, and we've seen this historically in Australia um, and also in the Eurozone, is that business sentiment and consumer sentiment strongly co-move. There's a correlation coefficient of about, about 0.9, 
What we've seen recently, though, is that our economy's two most important measures of, of sentiment, business confidence and consumer confidence, have, have diverged somewhat. It's not the first time it's happened. We've seen it um, happen a couple of years ago also. But you're right. We've seen, in terms of the NAB survey, we've had a rise in business confidence in June to its highest level since since September 2013. And then the following day, the Westpac Melbourne Institute's consumer confidence measure came out and it dropped to its its lowest lowest level for the for the year. And that's also translating into weaker retail sales and, and so on. Now, what causes this divergence? Well, some people think it's a timing issue. And that is the um, business confidence indicator was based on a survey that was conducted um, in the final week of June on about 400 companies. And that's before we had escalating fears of greed exit. That's before we had um, some of the wild fluctuations in in uh, the Chinese stock market that that uh, we saw we saw after that. So it could be a timing issue. Um, but my gut feeling is that it's more than than just a timing issue. Um, the reason for the divergence between consumer confidence and business confidence is that changes that are relatively good for for businesses in terms of their willingness to invest may not be particularly good for for consumers. Um, so one example might be the ongoing suppression in labour income, okay? So if consumers are worried about their future income, they've got reason to be more cautious. On the flip side, when it comes to to firms, that gives them reason for for optimism um, about about conditions. But even though firms are relatively optimistic about about conditions, um, we're not seeing a significant translation in terms of a willingness to hire um, or a willingness to invest. So across the board, except for mining, Across the board, business sentiment is is positive, but that's in relation to tar- current conditions. It's actually not really when you when you when you ask um, firms about their the changes in their willingness to hire um, and to invest in the short term and the medium term. We're not seeing significant changes in that, and as a result, we're unlikely to see significant changes in um, in unemployment in the future. Which means uh, we're unlikely to see significant changes in consumer sentiment. Absolutely. Look, I think you know in the next few months we'll see those sentiment indicators converge somewhat. So I think there'll be a, a realignment there. You know, a, another factor that may lead to this this divergent is the, you know, is the, the Australian dollar. So a weaker Australian dollar reduces the, the purchasing power of Australian consumers, but it boosts the competitiveness of, of Australian exporters, manufacturers, for example. So again, we might see some convergence, but there are forces at play that will sustain some some level of some level of divergence. So a lower Australian dollar could see manufacturers hiring more people, for example, and that could lead to a boost in employment, which would uh, in turn help consumer sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. We could we can see that we can see that see that happening. But it's interesting. It's referred to the RBA uh, bulletin paper that was that was published previously. What appears to be happening is that that the very blunt interest rate lever in terms of official interest rates the RBA has, is losing its direct impact on, on business investment. So we're looking at a whole range of other indirect measures, um, or indirect channels, I should say, by which changes in interest rates, lower interest rates, might, bo- might boost investment activity. Again, the lower Aussie dollar as a result of lower interest rates increase the competitiveness of uh, of Australian export industries. We see an increase in asset prices as a result of lower interest rates. That also increases wealth. So um, firms' balance sheets look better. They're able to borrow more and so on. So yeah, it all comes back again to to sentiment. I think the sentiment's going to be driving, particularly business sentiment, is going to be driving 
a lot of changes in in economic activity that we may see um, going forward. Isn't the RBA in effect saying there's only so much we can do? Oh, absolutely. You know, we know it's a very we know it's a very uh, interest rates are a very blunt instrument, and they are looking towards what's happening elsewhere. Um, so again, with the Fed meeting, see what happens in a couple of months' time. If the Fed decides to make a move on on normalising monetary policy in in a very gradual way, then they'll be doing the heavy lifting, um, which the RBA will be very will be very grateful for. And that will send the dollar down. Absolutely. But again. That might be good for business sentiment, will not be good for uh, consumer sentiment. I mean, there's some projections during the week that the dollar could go down as low as 60 cents. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, your guess is as good as mine on that one. I mean, it's sitting at a pretty good level now in the mid-70s. I mean, uh, do you see it going down much further? Again, it really does depend on on what happens to, uh, to interest rates globally. I think the markets are factoring in another interest rate cut. Um, so if we see a move by uh, the Fed earlier rather than later, then it's likely that we, we will see a further weakening of the Aussie dollar. Probably going to be around about September. September, that's right. Is what, we're th- what they're saying. Absolutely. I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, uh, as you say, businesses are feeling more buoyant, but they're not actually saying they're planning to employ more people. Yeah, that's true. I think, you know, across the board, we're seeing a, a tightening in investment criteria. We're seeing a, a level of caution that we didn't see probably before the the global financial crisis. So we don't see that nice channel, that nice trans- easy transmission channel, you know, from lower interest rates and perhaps even a lower Aussie dollar to, uh, to more investment activity and more hiring. You said you'll see a convergence coming. When do you see that? Look, I'd, I'd say in the next... In the next few months, um, we'll see we'll see somewhat of a convergence. I don't think we're going to see a perfect convergence again because of the factors that are are driving uh, a more buoyant sentiment amongst business people is actually having the opposite effect when it comes comes to consumers. So I think we will see a some some sustained divergence, but not by the the magnitude that that we saw uh, we saw in June. So what what sort of what what will drive this convergence? I think we tend to see consumer confidence being um, very susceptible to to news stories, for example. So, you know, if we see less fluctuations in uh, in the Chinese stock market, if there's fewer news stories on um, on Greece, for example, then I think consumer sentiment will uh, will pick up. Given that uh, Greece is okay for, for at least the next few months and uh, the Chinese seem to have some something a bit more control over yes. their market, we can yes. expect those stories to fade. Look, I think so. And as a result, I wouldn't expect to see the the continuing dip in consumer sentiment that, that uh, we've seen in the last last couple of months and over, over the preceding weeks. Jonathan Boymel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Well, I thought it was very interesting because uh, he says it's a standard thing where business confidence is moving in one direction and uh, consumer confidence is the other. question is, uh, when are they going to converge? Yeah, very good question. It, it, it'll be a bit of a curate's egg because certainly in Victoria, as the automotive industry collapses and disappears, the consumer confidence is going to be shaken fairly well. On the other hand, the dollar going down, uh, manufacturers will be feeling very confident, but uh, other people mightn't because they might be very insecure about their jobs. Well, yeah, the other thing, of course, is a lot of manufacturers have gone out of business and sold their equipment. That's right. And rebuilding the manufacturing industry in Victoria would be a big 
big task. So anyway, um, there it is. Now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first of all, it's official. Greece is no longer insolvent. It received an EU loan. And the International Monetary Fund has confirmed that Greece has cleared overdue debt repayments of uh, 2 billion euro and is no longer in arrears. And the repayments for another 4.2 billion euro for the European Central Bank due on Monday, last this week, came after the EU made Greece a short-term loan of 7 billion euro. Now, cash-strapped Greece missed one repayment to the IMF in June, another earlier this month. During the week, uh, Greek banks reopened after being closed for three weeks. However, restrictions remain in place. Greeks are facing price rises with an increase in value-added tax. And I might add that Standard & Poor's has upgraded Greece's credit rating by two notches, and the hike to triple C plus from triple C minus still leaves Greek government debt firmly in junk territory, but at least the ratings are moving in the right direction. The question is, for how long? Well, ex- excellent question, you know, and in effect, the IMF has uh, lent the money to repay the debt to the IMF. That's right. The question is now, I mean, Bloomberg did a survey of economists and they found that 71% of economists were saying Greece will exit the euro in 2016. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. They go back to the drachma. The drachma will be worth almost nothing initially, but it gives the Greeks a chance to grow on their own and... Uh, Uh, probably saved Cyprus too. Now, with the Iran nuclear deal, it's affected oil prices, Gary. Crude oil prices slipped. They fell when the UN Security Council voted in favour of the Iranian nuclear deal. That has seen the prospect of Iranian oil returning to the global market, which leads to a surplus of oil. So the price will go down. Now, West Texas immediate for delivery in August. The US benchmark fell for the fourth straight session, dropping 74 cents to $50.15 a barrel. In London, Global, the global benchmark of Brent North Sea crude for September closed at $56.65 a barrel. That's down 45 cents from Friday's settlement. And oil forecasts are now saying it won't get back to $100 a barrel US for five years. Yeah, but it's a bit ominous that it will, in fact, get back to $100 a barrel as demand rises and, uh, you know, countries like China get more and more cars. Well, yes, uh, but you have to see demand coming from places like China. We're not seeing that at the moment. No, that's right. Now, the big news in Australia was, of course, about the GST and the Premier's were at an impasse over what to do about the GST after New South Wales Premier Mike Baird proposed the GST be raised to 15% to pay for accelerating health costs. So they met this week. Actually, it was yesterday at uh, Victoria Barracks in Sydney, but the meeting failed to deliver the breakthrough on critical funding issues facing the states, and the disagreement over the GST proved unresolvable. But at least the discussion has started. Now, Baird had put the heat on the other premiers at this week's Council of Australian Government's Leaders' Retreat and Special Meeting. He argued that large-scale reform is needed because rising health spending will leave an estimated $45 billion hole in state and commonwealth budgets by 2030. And he wrote a piece in The Australian where where he was proposing increasing the GST from 10 to 15%, but excluding fresh food, education and childcare. And he was saying the GST has not been touched since it was implemented 15 years ago. It's a highly efficient tax that's difficult to avoid. And he said, while it's a regressive tax, we can take measures through income tax and welfare system to ensure that any changes don't make life harder for struggling families and the vulnerable. And he said quite the opposite. They would pay no additional tax, but receive the benefits of improved healthcare. Now, following opposite from the states. The Treasurer Joe Hockey last week declared it was game over on GST reform. And the, the issue now, though, is that there's no consensus and hopes of a binding final decisions are not high. And Victorian Queensland want, want to increase the Medicare levy instead. 
and they want to put a 2% hike to the Medicare levy, taking it to 4%. And that would have pushed the effective top marginal income tax rate to politically and economically dangerous 51 cents in the dollar for the top, top bracket. Now, South Australian Premier Jay Weatherall gave broad backing for discussion but said he wanted significant change to the GST before he'd contemplated supporting an increase. West Australian Premier Colin Barnett was all in favour of a GST overhaul, but he thought 15% was too much. He wanted it to 12.5%, and he wanted it extended to online goods, and he wanted to see the exemption for fresh food scrap, and there were also issues on health and education. Anyway, Prime Minister Tony Abbott and uh, the Social Security Minister Scott Morrison were there yesterday, and they completely shot down the proposal to raise the Medicare levy. And they don't want to raise the GST, and it looks as though they're all completely scared of the backlash in the in in the next election if they do raise the GST. But if they don't, healthcare and all the rest of it, education, and healthcare, take a beating. Well, that's right. Look, it's it's going to be a really big issue. Well, they're meeting again this morning, but this is on Thursday morning. But no one is expecting any result for the next few months no. if at all and the pollies are running scared basically and it's about time they had a, had a bit of uh, fiber that's right now economists have warned that the abbott government should not cut taxes again until its budget is in surplus or it raises more revenue and that was after treasurer joe hockey last weekend said he'd like to take tax cuts to the next election and he said on sunday when he was interviewed by andrew bolt that he'd like to take tax cuts promise more tax cuts to the next election despite his government's $41.1 billion budget deficit. Now, the Grattan Institute's John Daly has warned that Hockey's plan would put the budget in more trouble because his government has ruled out serious proposals to increase revenues at the same time. So he says the plan to cut taxes without raising new sources of revenue will assume that those tax cuts will be funded by future surpluses. And the likelihood of that happening is very remote. Very remote, <laughs> <laughs> this century, maybe. Now, uh, Comsec's latest quarterly State of States rating sees, says that the population boom in South Australia, South East Australia, has put New South Wales and Victoria at the top of Australia's economic rankings. Now, New South Wales has consolidated its position at the top, and it's been in that spot since October 2014, and it's improved its position on retail trade, new home construction, is powering ahead on population growth. Victoria has now moved into second spot, its leapfrog Northern Territory, which has slipped into third spot. Western Australia sits in the fourth spot, Queensland in fifth, ACTU comes in sixth, South Australia is seventh, and Tasmania's economy, as always, is on the bottom. Nice and quiet in Tasmania. Well, I think it's interesting because it, it shows us what's happening around the country and it also shows us uh, which are the states moving ahead. The interesting thing also is that Melbourne, Melbourne, rather than the state of Victoria, Melbourne is growing very quickly and faster than Sydney. The other one is that um, economic and property forecaster BIS Shrapnel has issued a report saying Australia could actually have an oversupply of housing three years from now. And that's going to put downward pressure on prices. It's saying, look, if you're going to get any slippage in the price, it's just going to be a correction. It won't be a crash. And it says affordability in Melbourne and Sydney are unlikely to disappear that quickly. Now, BIS Shrapnel estimates at work, which has started on a record 210,000 homes during 2014-15, that's going to be the peak because population growth is slowing. And the national market will slip shift into an oversupply by 2018. And the population growth, which has been running at 2% for the last few years, will drop down to 1%, 1.5% because the mining boom is fading. It's, uh, it's interesting, particularly if you look at the... Uh effect of China's, uh, Chinese investors coming into Australia, laundering their money out to get into uh, a foreign situation. As the dollar drops, yeah. a lot of them are going to be underwater. That's right. Deloitte Access Economics, speaking of China, has warned that Australia might be in for a recession 
because growth in China is weakening. And with China expected to hit its lowest growth level in 25 years, Deloitte Director Chris Richardson said the fallout will hit Australia. He, uh, he was talking to ABC News and he said, the chance for recession is higher now than it's been for quite, for quite some time. And uh, China, and the potential for a stumble there, is what people need to focus on much more than Greece or indeed China's share market. Now, according to the latest figures, China's growth has slowed to 7%. Economists have cast doubt on the credibility of the National Bureau of Statistics data. There are now forecasts that growth is going to slip to 6.8% in 2016. And Mr Richardson told the ABC that China's slowdown will make it harder for Joe Hockey to balance his budget because... His budget has a Made in China sign on it. Indeed it did. And that 6.8, I think, is very optimistic. It could be much lower. If the world is sort of heading towards recession in a lot of areas, uh, that's China's market. That's right. Now, very important piece of news about the banks. The banking regulator, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, has announced that the big four banks and Macquarie will have to carry more capital against mortgages to safeguard the country's financial system and to resist any financial crisis that comes along. Now, the banks will have to increase the average risk weighting for home loans from around 16%, where for every dollar loaned out, they have to have 18, 16 cents capital to 25%. And as a result, the banks are going to have to find another $11 billion, which could be funded by issuing more shares, underwriting dividend reinvestment plans, or lowering dividend payout ratios. And the extra $11 billion means the banks are now heading into some big headwinds because you've got commodity prices falling, unemployment rising, which could potentially mean more bad debts. The decision is a win for the smaller banks and credit unions who are required to use a 35 percent risk weight on their residential mortgages. These changes will come into effect from July the 1st, 2016. That gives the banks about a year to get their act together, Gary. It's uh, no wonder the bank shares are down a bit. That's right. That's right. And I think uh, and it'll be interesting to see, I mean, how this, is, how this will affect investors. Are they going to have lower dividends as a result? Exactly. Consumer confidence has bounced, driven by easing concerns about China equities and a breakthrough in Greece's debt saga, the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rose 4.5% to 111.8 points in the week uh, to July 9, following a 3.6% fall the previous week. And the final bit of news, Gary, is that Agriculture Minister Barnaby Joyce has signed a new deal that he hopes will see up to a million head of Australian live cattle sold to China within a decade. And that's an enormous development because it's come days after Indonesia, which accounts for about 56% of our $1.3 billion live export market, slashing its import quota from 200,000 to just 50,000 head of cattle. Now, that's interesting because if you're selling a million head to China, then Indonesia not going to get a look in. Either that or the price of live cattle will go up a lot. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, good on Barnaby Joyce and, I think it's, and I his think team. It's good. I think it's really good. Now, he says a deal with China could be worth as much as $2 billion a year when it's up and running. Chinese like a steak these days. That's right. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's very good. And uh, next week, we're going to have a chat with uh, Philip Weinman, the entrepreneur. Yep. And that's... It's fascinating. He's uh, he's a very active man, isn't he? Yes, that's right. Got a lot going on. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.